0: comes from you and is a blessing from you and at this time we have the opportunity to give back a small portion of what you've given to us and so we pray that you would use these funds lord god to extend your kingdom here and around the world and we thank you for these things in the name of jesus christ amen please be seated Today, first, we will be in Matthew 28. Every once in a while, you get those questions that you really want to get, right? Today, well, it wasn't today, but recently I got one of those questions where somebody came up to me and said, what is the Great Commission... Did Jesus have a Great Commission and who did he get it from, right? So today we're going to talk a little about that as we've been going over the church and what the church is and how the church runs and what there's this other thing of why are we doing all these churchy things, right? Well, the Great Commission was at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry when he finally told us what we're supposed to be doing in this life. Let's take a look at chapter 28 from verse 16 Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them and when he saw them excuse me and when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lord our God and Father, we have this opportunity today to open your word, and we pray that you would bless this time, that you would, through your word, Lord God, edify our hearts and minds, expand them, Lord God, rip them and rend them if necessary, but bring us to the place where our hearts and souls are in submission to you. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us that spiritual sight to see truth and that you would protect us from the evil one. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. We come to church. Everybody goes to church on Sunday, right? Interestingly, just about everybody goes to church, whether or not they're churchy people or not, whether or not they believe all of these things or not. Everybody goes. It's kind of nice. You usually get like coffee and a donut after. It's a good thing, right? And it's a social time. You see your friends there. You know, you make your grandma happy. It's all these things that we do. But there's a meaning and a purpose behind it. There's a reason that the church exists and the reason that it's thrived and survived for 2,000 years, even through periods of intense persecution where they were specifically trying to destroy the church and they could not stamp it out. One of the reasons is because its message is more powerful than this world. And as we go through the Bible, from beginning to end, we see a theme that matures all the way through until this time of the Great Commission. All the way back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, there was Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were created on the last day of God's creative acts in the very image and likeness of God, so that they were like Him. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls us by way of analogy, the offspring of God in a way, right? And so all the way from the beginning... Adam and Eve were there, and they fell into sin. And when sin came in, that's where all the bad stuff started happening. That's where people started to hate their neighbor instead of love their neighbor. And that's where people started to hate the law of God instead of love the law of God. And that's where all of the bad things in our hearts, the depression and the anxiety and the hatred, all come to a head there in the fall into sin. And all of humanity followed them right off that cliff. And so all these great stories in the Bible that happened from the beginning of... Uh, to the end the stories of noah and the stories of moses and all of these different characters are all bringing us forward to this time because god promised that there would be a messiah god promised that he would save us from ourselves and in an interesting way he also said i will save you from myself you know we don't like to just haggle on wrath all the time they don't want to sit around going, wrath, wrath, wrath. You know, that's very uncomfortable. Down here, you know, in Mississippi, I've noticed that a lot of you have this very uh, interesting relationship with what you call the hellfire and brimstone sermon. You've heard a lot of them. You're a little uncomfortable with them. You know they're necessary. You treat it like medicine, right? Sooner or later, you're going to have to take it, but you don't really like it, but it has to be done. You know, but it's a, it's a style of introducing things in which the negative aspects of the gospel, the negative propositions of the complex Uh, uh, considerations having to do with not believing in God are pushed to the front and possibly the believing in God and all of the benefits of knowing God and having life in him are held back a little and I think that's what makes you uncomfortable with it right Uh, so there are these things that happen and God had in mind from the very beginning that he was going to save us from his own wrath now here's the thing how many of you like injustice raise your hand no takers no takers Why do we hate injustice? Why do we hate evil? Right? I've told you many times I can't watch the news. The news freaks me out because they tell me all the bad news. And by the time I'm done with 23 minutes of news, I'm like depressed and I've got anxiety and I've got a pitchfork and I want to run out in the streets. (laughs) Drives me a little crazy because it's all these bad things happening and it affects us. And sometimes we say... To our mothers and our fathers, the people around us, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering? And sometimes we hold our hand up to God and say, God, why all of this? And we have to understand that from the very beginning, God had in mind a plan to save us. To save us and to eliminate evil from the world entirely. And so you remember the Christmas story, right? Jesus was born of a virgin. His mother Mary was conceived... Uh, conceived him by the Holy Ghost, and he was born a baby, right? And he lived, and he grew, and he became a man. And then for three years, he went around with his disciples, and he taught all of the people. But at the end of that time, the people turned against him, and they took him, and they nailed him to a cross, and they killed him. And the Bible says this was all according to the plan of God. Well, how can that be the plan of God? Well, the reason why is this. So we wouldn't have to die. God sent Jesus to die for us. And God accepts the punishment that was poured out on him as being sufficient to placate God's wrath against us. So God was saving us from himself. And so after, the third day after, Jesus rises again from the dead because he's not exactly like us. He's fully God and fully man, but he had the power of an imperishable life. And so he rises from the dead... And he's alive forever to intercede between God and ourselves. And then the church is all like, okay, well, what do we do now? And this is the what do we do now? There's a real crisis of purpose in the world, right? In the universities and such, they teach us that we don't really mean anything and we weren't really caused by anything. We don't have a purpose and we don't have a meaning And all the way for the last 2,000 years, the church has been holding out this one thing and saying, there's a meaning. There's a purpose. Not only that, there is a thing for you to do. You want to know what one of the dangers of true religion is? Lethargy. Let me tell you another one, and I know churches don't like to talk about this boredom. We get saved, right? We come to know the Lord of glory, and at first there's this surge of energy, and we're so full of happiness and joy because what we knew is so different from what we are. But after 20, 30 years, it's kind of easy to go, eh, I'm just going to church. It's easy for us to roll back into a place of comfort where we are not instantly infuriated by the evils of the world. So I want you to notice here that when we get to this page, the very last page of Matthew, after the entire story of Jesus, what he tells us is stuff to do. There are few things less valuable than doing nothing, right? There's this president. I think he was one of our greatest presidents. His name is John Calvin Coolidge. Maybe you guys have looked him up. Nobody ever talks about him because he didn't do anything. But that's what made him a great president. His entire philosophy of the presidency is really the federal government shouldn't be doing much. I'm just going to put a stop to lots of stuff. And so people hate him (laughs) because he didn't do much. But he was also not doing things he wasn't supposed to do, right? So that's one thing. That's one reason we don't do much is because we probably shouldn't be doing some things. But there's this other thing of what is the meaning and the purpose of our lives. I remember, it was all the way back when I was a kid. I remember when I was 11 years old, the time that my faith woke up. Now, I had always believed in God and I'd always heard the gospel and everything. But there was this moment that was just transformational with me where all of a sudden I like got it. I like got it that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man and that he died for me and set me free and I was going to live forever. And from that point on, I'm just going to work for him, right? I'm just going to do stuff and I'm going to tell people about this gospel because what's happened to me, I want them to have it too. So our entire lives become wrapped up in this purpose so that whether we're a doctor or whether we're a lawyer or whether we're in the military, whatever we're doing in one way or another, we're serving God and increasing the kingdom through time. There has never been an officially ordained evangelist that has converted as many people as the normal people in the church in their daily lives. Do you get that? Just the normal people in the church, just being Christians, that is how the church really progresses through time and history. Christians being Christians. And so he had the 11 there, and he said, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice what he's claiming there. He's not claiming that the church has been given to me. He's not claiming that you folks have been given to him, right? He's not claiming that Jerusalem or even Israel has been given to him. All authority in heaven and on earth. When we wonder why there are apparently about 3.4 billion Christians on the world today, when he's starting with just these 11 guys, it's because that's progress, folks. That's something that's working, and I know we can get frustrated in our minds and souls and go, you know, it's just not working fast enough. I got this cousin, and I've been talking to him for 40 years, and he's still not a Christian. It's just not working. That's not the sign that it's not working, right? That's the sign that God has a specific context, time, and place for everybody, and maybe God's great work is actually in you, in the perseverance you have to have for 40 years to bring your cousin to faith, right? We don't know what God's doing in the great mysteries of his will, but we know what he's told us to do. And then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, you guys know that for about 3,000 years, God worked through one specific people, right? One specific nation until the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he's like, All right, now the kid gloves are off. We're going to take this planet. Here's the thing He wasn't a rebel. He's not taking it without justice. He's already paid the price for it. Now he says, we're going to take it all. Every single molecule on this planet is under the leadership and headship of Jesus Christ. Everything. And that means every person. There's this theology of the church that makes me very uncomfortable where we think, okay, Jesus is the head of all of us, the church, but those people out there, they're (laughs) satans." No, there's only one king, and it ain't Satan, folks. There's a difference between a rebellious body that's trying to claim authority in places and a righteous authority that's trying to keep order, right? There are still rebels out there fighting against Christ, even in the spiritual realm. But all of the authority is Jesus's. You understand that, right? When you go out and you evangelize, you are an ambassador sent To provoke a response in people by the telling of the gospel, to give them the opportunity to get right with God, to be saved by God, to be healed in mind and soul. In this other way, you're kind of like a physician. You're offering medicine that will bring restoration. And you have the opportunity to do that. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All that I have commanded you. Isn't that beautiful? So that's what we're doing. We're transforming the world day by day, inch by inch, through Christian love and the teaching of the gospel of Jesus. If you wonder what you're supposed to be doing or what your place is in the church and such, this is it. This is it. Not just that we come to faith, but we give away our faith. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because sooner or later the age is going to end, right? There have been lots of ages in the Bible. This is another one. This is the time for the expansion and increase of the gospel in the world. Where all of the people from all of the nations and every tribe and every race and every tongue, they all come to him from all over the world until eventually it's a Christian world. Now I know a lot of you have been taught, well, things are just supposed to get worse and worse and worse and worse till the end. But not in my Bible. In my Bible, eventually things are going to get rough and Christ is going to come back, but until then, we're supposed to be busy. Let's take a look at John. 3.16. Now, for some of you, you're going to go, hey, that's that college football verse. And you would not be wrong, but it's heavier than that. Because when we want to know this, we also want to know, okay, then what is that gospel? You use this word gospel, it means good news, but what is it? Well, there are some places in the Bible where it gives us a good synopsis. In verse 16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost and to draw all people to himself. So it's as simple as if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved and you are Christ's, right? Isn't that simple? Some people have said there's really no simple presentation of the gospel. That's kind of true. It is. It's more complicated than it seems. It might even be deceptively simple. But at the end, the analysis is the same. If we believe in Jesus, we are already a Christian. And if we're already a Christian, we're a part of his church. And if we're already a part of his church, we're already part of this amazing thing that he's doing, unfolding the gospel through history. The next verse says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people have loved darkness rather than light. So what I want to encourage you to do is embrace that light. Feel that light in your heart and mind and soul and believe the gospel of Jesus and even say in your own heart and mind and soul, I believe this gospel of Jesus. I don't only believe that he died in history, which is obvious from the evidence. And I don't just believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he saved me, I believe that I will rise from the dead with him. John chapter 14. Now I know that the identity of Jesus is a little bit hard for us sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly what he's saying and then sometimes he is amazingly abundantly clear. In verse 14 he says, Let your hearts be true. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you remember when he said, I'll be with you to the very end of the age? And you know the way to where I'm going. Now Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You remember the way that they thought about God then? They thought of the father is God. And so maybe Jesus was in some way his son, but it was hard to figure out how. And then he explains himself because Philip said to him in verse eight, Lord, show us the father and that's enough for us. In other words, show us the father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. In other words, whoever has seen Jesus has seen God. I know him being fully God and fully man, him manifesting himself in our humanity in order to teach us and interact with us is a heavy concept, right? So it's hard for us to see exactly who is this Jesus, right? He's super famous, everybody talks about him, Accordingly, apparently he's got a lot of books about him and stuff like that. But what Jesus said he was is the manifestation of God to us so that we can know him as he really is to the best of our mere human ability isn't that incredible and so when jesus says who he is he says if you've seen him you have seen the father it's a beautiful thing it's a wonderful thing but i don't want us to pass it by as poetry because it has vast consequence for our lives right here right now What we need is to understand who God is and understand our place in him so that we can know the course and determining factors of our life. You need a purpose in your life, and there's only one that goes. There's no way to get to the Father except for through him, right? So our understanding of who and what we are and what we're going to be through history is always going to be found in Christ. When we embrace him now, we find out who and what we are, and there is no other place. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Lord our God, you are so good to us, and you have revealed yourself to us in the person and work of your son, Jesus. And we pray, Lord God, that all of us would just cling to that as the anchor for our souls so that we might know you, and in knowing you, have life and hope and peace. We thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. closing hymn will be number 359 Be Thou My Vision